Hey Leader, and welcome to another episode of the L3 Leadership Podcast, where we are obsessed with helping you grow to your maximum potential and to maximize the impact of your leadership. My name is Doug Smith, and I am your host, and today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Bear Tongue Advisors. We also recorded this episode live from the new Return.com studio. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here, and I hope that you enjoy our content and become a subscriber. Know that you can also watch all of our episodes over on our YouTube channel, so make sure you're subscribed there as well. And as always, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while and it's impacted your life, it would mean the world to me if you'd leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. That really does help us to grow our audience and reach more leaders, so thank you in advance for that. Well, Leader, in today's episode, you'll hear my conversation with Dr. Asa Lee, who is the president of the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. And in our conversation, you'll hear Dr. Lee talk about how building Lego sets can impact your leadership. You'll hear him talk about the lessons that he's learned from the seminary's most famous alumni, Mr. Rogers, why presence and leadership matters, and so much more. But before we dive into the conversation, just a few announcements. This episode of the L3 Leadership Podcast is sponsored by Baratung Advisors. The financial advisors at Baratung Advisors help educate and empower clients to make informed financial decisions. You can find out how Baratung Advisors can help you develop a customized financial plan for your financial future by visiting their website at baratungadvisors.com. That's B-E-R-A-T-U-N-G advisors.com. Securities and investment products and services offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA and SIPC. Baratung Advisors, LPL Financial, and L3 Leadership are separate entities. I also want to thank our sponsor, Henny Jewelers. They're a jeweler owned by my friend and mentor, John Henny. And my wife, Laura, and I got our engagement and wedding rings through Henny Jewelers and had an incredible experience. And not only do they have great jewelry, but they also invest in people. In fact, for every couple that comes in engaged, they give them a book to help them prepare for marriage. And we just love that. So if you're in need of a good jeweler, check out hennyjewelers.com. And I also want to thank our new sponsor, Return.com. And Leader, let me just ask you this. Have you ever had an interest in investing in real estate? Well, now for as little as $500, you can become a commercial real estate investor. Just visit Return.com to learn more. That's R-E-I-T-U-R-N.com. Investing involves risk. Please consult the return offering circular if you're interested in investing. And with all that being said, let's dive right in. Here's my conversation with Dr. Asa Lee. Well, Dr. Asa Lee, it is an honor and a privilege to have you on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. People won't have context for this, but we were just joking. This has been the most rescheduled podcast in L3 leadership history. Um, so <laughs> I just really appreciate your graciousness uh, with, with my reschedules. Um, but for those who may not be familiar with you, can you just kind of give us uh, an overview of who you are and what you do? Certainly. Uh, thanks, Doug. Uh, Asa Lee, I'm the president of Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Uh, it's hard to describe what a seminary president does, but in essence, I'm the equivalent of a university president or a high school principal, or in some cases, some days, a church pastor, all in one. Well, I, I certainly want to dive into to all those things, but give us a little bit of context of, of your leadership background and what got you uh, to where you are today. Yeah, so I am originally from the Washington, D.C. area and uh, served first uh, stint in public school education and then went from public school education into ministry and served in ministry for a number of years and then, you know, into the academy, into the classroom, and then sojourned into uh, higher administration, first as a dean, then uh, as a sort of vice president of, of operations and ministry, administration, and then um, in 2021 came up here uh, to Pittsburgh Pennsylvania and took the presidency um, I'm here. So it's been a, a very interesting 
journey of first sort of an educator, then a pastoral leader, then a pastoral educator, and then uh, a higher ed administrator. And then, uh, you know, here we are. Yeah, and I'm always curious, uh, you know, I'm sure calling had a part to play in this, but I'm always curious why people choose the fields that they do. And um, so can you just tell us, you know, why did you choose to go the higher ed route, the ministry route, and why do you think that can make uh, the greatest impact from your life? Yeah, so I was, um, I tell people I didn't choose ministry, ministry chose me. I'm, um, uh, I first heard the call to ministry when I was 13 years old. Wow. And um, uh, it was an audible call in the sense that I, you know, almost, I was in junior high and kind of turned around when I heard the voice of what I now understand is, is the, the spirit of God to say, you know, you, you're going to pastor my people. And I kind of turned around to see what that was about. I grew up in church, so I knew what that meant. So that meant I spent the next 10 years running from that very thing, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, it was very clear. I don't want to be a part of that. That's not what I want to do. Pastors stand up every Sunday and they get a lot of flack. And it's not, that's what I want to do. Um, I did want to be uh, an educator. Uh, I did enjoy sort of um, one of the most pivotal, one, one very pivotal moment for me was being uh, asked to explain a lesson in a class, uh, in a music class. And I, I remember vividly, uh, and still to this day, this is the thing that always gets me excited. Um, is the look on people's faces when they get it, right? Wow. It's, it, it's a contact high. It's just an incredible experience to see people, whether that's Bible study, life lessons, sitting in a meeting, when people start nodding their heads and they start getting it, or you give them a concept that they've never received before. I remember as a kid having that experience. And ever since then, I was like, I want to be part of that journey for folks. So I always wanted to be an educator, didn't ever want to be a pastor. Um, uh, and so I went to school to be a, a music educator. I was a musician and uh, studied to be a music teacher and was a music teacher for a short period of time and um, uh, really enjoyed that. But um, when I was about 24 and graduated uh, from um, well, 23, graduated from, from uh, college and gotten a job and was working in a church and teaching and uh, that voice came back from, from the age of 13 and said, you've played enough. It's time. And, uh, and I have to say it was time. It was time for that. And, and so, so both worlds kind of had merged, right? So uh, I, am, uh, I have fallen in love with the pastoral ministry and the idea of leading people to a better vocational sense of who they are in God and being able to give themselves to God for the work of ministry. But then also, like you still get to educate folks and you still get to see that bright light happen in their eyes. And so the, the last um, 10, 10 or plus years in theological education means I've been able to live both of these things together in a, in a very exciting way. So I enjoy what I do. Wow. Um, one thing I want to take a, a side trail on is you talked about hearing the voice of God when I think you said you were 13 years old. Um, mm -hmm. You know, this is a leadership podcast. We have people of faith, people not of faith. But I think a lot of times it's interesting, you know, I, I, you know, I say similar things like I felt like God dealt with my heart. Uh, mm -hmm. And so many times I have leaders come up to me and say, like, how how do you actually know God spoke to you? And I'm just curious, you know, in the way mm. you describe it to people, if someone's trying to discern or hear God's voice, what would your advice be to them? Um, seeking out God's will for their life? 
Well, I think one of the most important things is, and we, we miss this sometimes in, 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 in the American expression of Christianity, especially in American church, is that we do think, we often sometimes think we're supposed to go on go at it alone. Hmm. But faith, living a life of faith is not a lonely proposition. It's actually a communal proposition. The biblical record is countless examples of people working in community. Right? Even Jesus calls a community together to carry out the, God's mission. So I think part of what we have to recognize is God puts people in our lives um, that helps to surround us with sort of acts of confirmation, challenge, hope, encouragement, a, a reprimand, all of that is important. So um, you may hear something or you may discern something, or you may sense something, but then also there's the moment where somebody else comes to you and says, you are uh, what, what, you know, they, they, they give you a statement or something like that. In my case, um, people have been calling me Reverend Lee since I was a kid because I talk with my hands a lot. You'll see that. <laughs> right. So, you know, there are pictures of me as a kid. Like I have this, this vivid picture of me on one of those play telephones at, at like three years old. And I've got, I've got, I'm doing this That's awesome. and I look like a preacher. Right. <laughs> so they call me Reverend Lee. Well, that, you know, uh, when I was ordained, my mother told the story to the church about how a great aunt christened that and saw that in me hmm. at a very young age, right? So community matters. It was the, once I announced the call, my, the, the acceptance of my call on my life, the church that I was serving at the time as a minister of music, uh, one woman in the choir said, when I said, you know, I'm called to preach and I was crying, all kind of stuff. And she looked at me and said, oh, we've known that for years. <laughs> right. So wow. community helps to affirm sort of where you're going on this. So you don't, you don't have to do this alone is my point. Yeah. I guess on that note, uh, I guess I would be curious because so community is one of our core values at L3 leadership. We believe no leader should ever do life alone, but in community for all the reasons that you just mentioned, but yet, you know, statistically I saw a stat, I think Henry cloud shared that he believes about 80% of leaders uh, when asked, said they don't have one person that they can confide mm. in in their leadership journey. And you've obviously uh, grown into a significant leadership role, uh, get to interact with a, hot, a lot of, of pastors. And I know that could be a lonely world. I'm just curious, you know, at, at your level, how do you seek out intentional community that can continue to, to sharpen you and not you know, I know a lot of times leaders actually, the higher they go up, the more they're, they're paranoid, they're afraid people take advantage mm -hmm. of them or not. I'm just curious, how do you intentionally pursue community in this season of your life? You know, uh, it's funny because I'm often quoted to say, I don't want any new friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but um, you know, I, I keep running into people who are of like mind. Um, uh, and uh, I, we're drawn, you know, like, like is drawn into like in that, in that regard. And so um, I don't necessarily seek out because I do have a core group of friends who are positioned in places of their own leadership. And we can come together and talk about and pray for each other and do all the things that kind of edify each other without sort of the competition or the fear of what have you. Um, and so I don't seek out folks. However, um, the way this job works is that you run into people who are of like mind. And in so doing, what are some of the attributes? Are they courageous? Are they, do they speak their minds? Are they willing to be held accountable? Um, are they willing to hold me accountable? Are they not intimidated by, you know, stature or money or all these things? Are they true, genuine people? Are they people of integrity? And, you know, when you start adding all those filters, 
you know, I got a core group of people. That's why I say no, no new friends. It's rare that people make it through all of those things. But when they do, then you're able to share yourself in ways that, that, you know, the job is lonely, right? The leadership in your context is always lonely. Um, But being able to rely on others in that, in those, in those, um, in your, in your personal life and in even your professional life means that you have places that kind of sharpen the iron that you you bring to the table. So yeah, that, those, those are kind of my attributes that I look for. Uh, people I can share myself with and are willing to share themselves with me. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I think that the filtering process is good. I never really thought of it through that lens, but I guess I kind of naturally do that, but putting verbiage to it, uh, that's significant. Mm. Um, so you talked about, you, you started off really as a teacher, uh, but then you started growing in leadership and started having leadership roles, which requires a lot of growth. You know, people don't understand. They see people sitting in your seat and think, oh, you just magically got there. Mm-hmm, I'm always mm-hmm. anxious to ask leaders, what, you know, what are some of the prices that you've had to pay or maybe things that you've had to grow through in order to, to lead at the level you're leading today? Um, that's, I mean, that's a really great question. Um, you know, there's always the price that we pay for balancing our families. Right. Um, you know, be in order to you make sacrifices with your family. And I'm grateful for my wife, who is also a pastor. But um, um, we have four daughters and that that means that there are a lot of four daughters of still school age. And so that wow. that means that there are a lot of different dynamics going on. But I'm grateful to her that she she supports the journey I've been on. But that means I'm I'm not at every soccer game. That means I'm not. Um, in, you know, in spaces and places that helps all the time. I do the best I can, um, but I'm grateful for, for that kind of sacrifice. The other, the other is that I haven't been able um, to chart a kind of trajectory that some, you know, other of my friends have been able to. I mean, I, I spent, you know, much of my 20s serving churches. <laughs> um, and so I was a pastor and you know, pastors don't get to do things that a lot of other people get to do in their twenties. And so, you know, I have no regrets about that. It's just an acknowledgement that, you know, I've taken a different path and that means um, how I relate to others can be lonely or different. Um, And um, in many respects, I present a lot older and more mature than I, than I am for people because I've had to grow up quickly. I started working in churches when I was 16 years old. So that meant I needed to comport myself with the level of maturity to be able to to achieve things. I, I, those are prices that I, you know, I knew I knew I had to pay, which is why, in part, I ran for so long. Right? Yeah. These are these were kind of the things that I knew I was going to get in, get get challenged by. So um, I wouldn't change anything about that. But it's just an acknowledgement that those were some of the, the the key prices I had to pay. Yeah. Well, four girls, school age. I have four kids, two boys, two girls. <laughs> I got to ask, you know, I love asking leaders, what are you learning in this season of parenting to, to be a good parent? The beauty of children, young children, is that they always give you perspective, mm. <laughs> right? Uh, you know, no matter how difficult your day has been, if the most important thing is my bologna sandwich fell on the floor at lunch and it ruined <laughs> my day, it puts every other issue in perspective, right? Um, and so being able to always come home to people whose worlds are not your world, um, and they're not intentionally selfish about it. It's just children are naturally self-centered because that's who they are. Um, you, that means you're always brought drawn into their world. And that's actually refreshing for me when I have to deal with 
you know, complex issues of budgeting or who are we going to hire or what is this going to be? Right? It's really quite simple. Make a better sandwich, right? <laughs> or, or do the thing, Daddy. That you did. You fill out the, the permission slip. Those are the things that matter. So I'm I'm grateful for the humility that children bring in our lives, especially in this season, where I think all of us as parents of young children post COVID are all kind of figuring out the shifting sands of what it means to be a parent um, in this day and age. So uh, are you still mastering the art of making a sandwich or have you, uh, have you got that down? I'm an excellent sandwich maker. Um, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> make a better sandwich. That's so funny. I, mean, I get to scare my kids. Come on, yep. daddy. Um, yep. I, I do. Yep. Want, yep. I want to talk a little bit about leadership and researching this. You know, I've read articles and listened to a few other things that you were on. And one thing you said, you said, uh, presence and availability are hallmarks of, of your leadership style. I think that's beautiful, but I would love to hear you talk more about that. Yeah. Um, when you're when you're a, a chief executive, um, you know, the corner office is often the most distant office in the in the organization. Right. Uh, so you got to go through layers and gatekeepers to get there. And so. To the extent possible, um, and this takes courage of the leader, which I can talk about later, but, um, you know, in this day and age, uh, a lot of our institutions are going through transitions and changes. And so being a present and available leader means coming out of the office uh, and uh, not sort of walking the halls, stalking people. But, you know, what does it mean to kind of sit in the courtyard uh, of our campus, for example? And that's where I respond to emails or uh, I'm, I'm taking lunch when I'm available in the cafeteria with next to students. Right. What does it mean to um, keep the door open so that anybody that just drops in has an opportunity to have five minutes with the president? What, what difference can that do in your organization in terms of the ability of transparency and organizational management? Um, certainly there are things that you can't talk about because of propriety or what have you, but there are a lot of things you can talk about. And so learning to be able to, to, to balance sort of being present when you need to be but also being available. This is an important value that I learned as a pastor. Um, it costs nothing for you to spend five minutes um, shaking some hands and, and being at the beginning of an event or being at the end of an event and, and seeing folks. How many emails can you avoid by spending five minutes saying hello to folks? Wow. Um, and that just saves a lot of time and a lot of energy, but it also gives you a constant check-in to say, you know, the energy in this meeting doesn't feel right. And it, this wasn't my meeting, but I know what to ask when I have my cabinet meeting later on, right? Is everything okay in the institution? Is everything all right with that, what's happening over here? So temperature checking is a key key part of that presence. Because if you're, if you're present, then you're also um, making yourself available in some way. I love that. Um, we were just talking, you know, before we jumped on the call, you're getting ready for your fall board meeting. You talked about the budget, you know, all the fun stuff involved with leadership that people want to do when they're in their 20s. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of pressure comes with leadership. I'm just curious, how do you personally deal with the pain and pressure and stress that comes with your job? So I have di various different outlets. Um, you know, what I'm known for is in my office here, you can't see anything at the moment, but my office here, I have Lego. Lego bricks and Lego um, sets everywhere. Huh. So, you know, over here on my um, bookshelf is a Sydney Opera House and a Tower Bridge. And over here is a four foot model of a Titanic. Uh, that was my summer project last year. I mean, I have I have 
uh, that's, you know, um, Legos are an important leadership kind of thing. They always remind me, Legos are, always remind me, you know, I grew, I grew up at a time when Legos were, you bought, you bought a box of Legos and they were all just a bunch of Legos. They didn't have any instructions. <laughs> you built what was over on the box. You just kind of threw them together. You built what on the box. Nowadays, they've got complex, you know, builds and all that other good stuff. But what, what I learned early on is, you know, the bricks, you can only build with the bricks, with the bricks that you have. Hmm. You, you can't, you can't, you know, if you need a circle and you have squares, you're not going to get to a circle. Hmm. You got to figure out, you know, how do you build with the bricks that you have? So, you know, one of my outlets is if I cannot finish, if I'm working on a big project or I got some big thing going on, building a Lego build is very tactile, practical. I've accomplished something for the day, right? So I got an outlet like that. Another outlet is I garden. I do a lot of gardening, um, uh, vegetable gardens um, and, uh, you know, tomatoes, squash, cabbage, uh, potatoes, all sorts of things. Uh, Working in the soil, again, very tactile, being able to do this. Um, I, I spend a lot of time working on tactile kinds of things, which you can do a thing in a short period of time, and you can walk away from that thing and say, I accomplished something. Um, and so those are those are things that keep me sort of de-stressed in that way. Because um, if I can if I can do those things, then I feel like I'm accomplished. But I'm also, while you're doing those things, working on those complex issues that you've got to deal with on a on a regular basis. So I have several outlets like that. Yeah, I love that. I remember in 2008, I went to a conference where Rick Warren say, he told leaders, you need to divert daily, withdraw weekly and abandon annually. But the divert daily, which you're living this out, he basically just said, if you work with your mind all day, you need to do something with your hands. And he actually mentioned gardening, but I love the Lego thing. Uh, do you have <laughs> a random question? Do you have any bucket list Lego builds that you're like, hey, I know what I'm doing next year and the year after? Like, what's next? So the my, one of my bucket lists was the Titanic. So I did okay. that. Check. Um, and and so that was like a big big deal, and I was just giddy when it was done. Um, the, the the other is um, uh, the Concorde that just came out. There's a set that 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 is the Air France Concorde or British Airways Concorde. So I'm gonna uh, that's probably gonna be next summer. I've had I made it a habit. I've been in theological education in one form or another for. 18, almost 18 years now. And so when I started teaching about 10 years ago, um, I, uh, every year at the end of the academic year, I would either be gifted or I would go and buy a a Lego set. So, um, you know, the Eiffel Tower or the Concorde is going to be next year's. It's a five foot tall, four and a half foot tall Eiffel Tower thing. So, I have no places to put these things. That's the problem. I was going to um, ask, does your wife let you bring these home? And <laughs> No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why they're in my office in my conference room upstairs. I can't have them at home. Uh, <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that these are outlets for dealing with stress. Um, and I, I also love asking leaders just what they do to incorporate rest or Sabbath into their life. Um, just because especially nowadays with all the mental health issues going down, I mean, leaders just go so hard for so long without taking a breaks. Do you have any rhythms of rest or Sabbath in your life? So one is, and I'm, and I, you know, like most leaders and when it comes to rest, I'm not good at it. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I try to take, I, I'll press hard for every, you know, four to six weeks, you know, kind of just kind of push through with some stuff and then try to use a, a week on week seven to power down 
in some way or another, whether that is, you know, some golf or, you know, just not in the office or double down with family time, that kind of stuff. Uh, again, that rhythm is difficult depending on when that seventh week falls, but I try to be able to do that. You know, for example, the, we're in the midst of the push leading up to the board meeting, but week seven comes after the board, mm-hmm. after the board meeting is done. And I'll, I'll be in San Antonio for a little bit and I'll be, uh, in Atlanta and then Thanksgiving and that kind of stuff. So that's, that's one important, um, uh, aspect of that. Um, the other is uh, it takes me about 10 days to really power down. Right. Um, so this idea that I can take a week vacation and I'm good, that's no. If I'm going to really power, I need two weeks back to back. That whole first week, it takes about four days just to learn to deprogram grabbing my phone every five minutes to check emails. Right. And then about week about week one is done. I'm now in the position where I can actually rest. And then week two is, is beneficial. So, you know, taking two weeks at a time as opposed to one week is an important learning that I, that I developed over the years when you really want to power down altogether. Yeah. My wife started, my wife and I started implementing that a few years ago and yeah, I absolutely agree with you that week to get unwound and then actually be able to rest is, is huge. Uh, another one of your responsibilities as a leader is, is culture building. You're responsible for the culture mm-hmm. of your organization. I'll just leave that open-ended. What, what have you learned about building great cultures? Cultures are maintained, built and sustained by people. So, uh, choosing the right people, uh, one of my, uh, uh, one of one bit of, inf- uh, of, uh, advice that was most important for me, uh, as a leader coming up was choosing the most important thing you do as a leader is choosing who's going to be on your team. And, uh, that's important because who you choose on your team helps to build the culture you want to have. Right. And so conversely, cultures are maintained, toxic cultures and other cultures are maintained by people as well. Um, the, the challenge often though is um, if you inherit an old culture, like in the case of Pittsburgh Seminary, which is 230 years old, um, <laughs> wow. you cultures are often maintained by people. Uh, some cultures are created by people who are gone and therefore people maintain a culture that no one is invested in anymore. Hmm. That's where you get statements like, we've always done it that way, but nobody knows why we do it that way. <laughs> and nobody knows who's servicing who to do it, continue to do it that way. And so you sometimes have to um, fight ghosts, I like to say. Hmm. You have to spend time sort of speaking to uh, the zombies that are walking around that nobody knows what's going on but this system was put in place by somebody who's been dead for 30 years, but yet we still do this thing. Does it work? No. Well then having the right people present means you can begin to change the culture more rapidly because they're willing to do something else. That's hard work because mining a culture means really getting into the minds of people and understanding why people do what they do uh, there. Culture, culture is not sort of this amorphous thing that just kind of happens. It's maintained by people and people get something from the culture. So you've got to be able to navigate that as well. Did you, did you have that experience where you inherited an old culture and had to change? Was that difficult for you? And how did you change if you did? Yeah. So uh, Pittsburgh Seminary is a Presbyterian seminary. I am not Presbyterian. Uh, I am also 
um, the first African-American and the youngest president in the school's history. So I check a lot of new boxes here. Uh, But what that really means is I'm not invested in the things that others that have held this office have been because of their denominational connection, because of their longevity in, in certain spaces. So I get to come in and ask good questions. That's the advantage of being new in so many different ways. Okay, so tell me what this is again. <laughs> and that kind of in gentle interrogation means um, you, things are changing and things are invited to be questioned. Um, and what you actually discover is if you give as president the space for questioning, then other people ask the good questions. Hmm. And then next thing you know, everybody's like, well, let's try something different. And so this has been the journey we've been on at Pittsburgh for the last three years is questioning in not necessarily a bad way, but just simply interrogating everything to say, does this work for us now? It worked for us then. Does it work for us now? It doesn't. Oh, well, let's let's do something different. And in many cases, it's been the ghosts of our past that we've been running into to say, well, you know, it was done by this person who was no longer here. Okay, great. Can we really do something different? And can we imagine something different? Yeah, have you found that in those instances where where change is necessary, how often do the people have to change versus, well, I, by meaning bringing new people in who adopt a new culture because other people just can't make that transition to the new culture versus being able to come in, get people to make that change? I'm just curious, what's your experience been? So, you know, this is this is probably some people would call this a weakness or a bias. Uh, I'm an educator at heart. So I, my default is always that people will learn and change if they're teachable, right? And, you know, I got to say, we haven't had, we've not had nearly as much turnover as I thought we would in positions. The the challenge is you've got to be patient. (laughs) You've got to be willing to, to, and and frankly, sometimes you can't be patient. Sometimes the change needs to happen right away. Um, But, you know, I've been, I've been afforded the luxury of being able to invite people to a different reality Hmm. and inviting people to a different reality. I'm inviting them to think differently. And inviting th- people to think differently, you then have to say, okay, I'm inviting you to think differently, and this is going to ask something different of you. Trust, and then here's a quick big piece. Trust me, right? <laughs> and so, you know, there's a lot of asks in there. But in, in most cases, the, the, the community here has trusted me. Uh, when I first arrived here, the seminary was closed because it was in the middle of COVID. And so there was no real activity going on at all, but we had promised, I arrived in June of 2021, but we promised by August of 2021, the seminary would be open and the campus would be available. But when I arrived, there were no opening plans. There was no way to do any sort of, uh, you know, pre-screening or all the things that we got accustomed to back then. So I had done that work at my previous place and so I had to say to them pretty quickly, you got to trust me and you got to think differently about this. And there were a lot of skeptics, but then we opened and we haven't had, you know, any sort of mass breakouts of any kind. And so, OK, maybe this guy might be trustworthy here. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But that's not to say that there hasn't been sort of the need to change some personnel. And that has, right. had, has, has had to happen as well. And that's partly because um, as I as I tell people, I invite people to change. I invite people to, to journey with change. And sometimes they have to change outside of the institution. They can't do it here. And if that's okay, we've got to learn to do that as well. 
Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about seminary. Obviously you're passionate about it. You lead one, uh, mm -hmm. and you're responsible for really training and equipping people for ministry. You know, why are seminaries important for those listening? You know, why should they consider attending a seminary if they want to go into ministry? Yeah. Seminaries are, um, some of the world's first vocational schools, right. Uh, in modern parlance, dating back to the late 18th, early 19th century. Uh, the, where they, I call them pastor factories. They were designed to be places where people uh, who are interested in being pastors would come, get trained, and go serve congregations. Pittsburgh Seminary is no different. It just was founded, you know, when Western Pennsylvania was frontier country. And this, this seminary was founded in order to educate people for churches on the frontier. Um, however, in the last 25, 30 years, with the decline of a lot of church attendance across you know, denominational life, um, uh, in many places, people going to non-denominational churches in different communities, um, mainline traditional seminaries have been forced to change. And um, they become less pastor factories and more vocational centers. Hmm. And what I mean by that is, if you're a person of faith and you want to use your faith as a way of enacting change in the world, um, but you, may, you don't necessarily think you're, you, you're called to be a pastor, you're not a pastor, but you may be a nonprofit person. You want to be a community organizer who uses faith to be able to do that. Seminaries are now retooling to be the places where you can learn Bible, you can learn communication, you can learn co contextual analysis um, and urban ministry and all sorts of other kinds of creative ways of doing ministry and then go um, with uh, certifications to go out and do that work. And so Pittsburgh Seminary is one of these places where that's that that kind of activity is happening. If you want to be a mission person, if you want to be an urban missional, um, urban ministry person, if you want to be um, someone that is doing a creative work around youth and young adult ministry, this place is an example of that where you're doing kind of credentialing in this way. Um, so ministry is not anymore simply church pastoral ministry. It is now sort of a broadening of that scope that um, provides a deepening and equipping to strengthen people's call on their lives, whatever they feel themselves to be. Yeah. And I'm curious, just, you know, I'm always looking for how leaders think about developing and equipping leaders, you know, in your experience, even through seminaries, et cetera, what have you found to be the best way to actually train people, disciple people uh, to actually go out and do great things with their lives to make an impact? Yeah. I mean, and that's a great question because this is, um, this is kind of what my doctoral work was in. And that is, uh, it first requires, uh, when you're training folks, you've got to do it in good communities and, and diverse communities. And what I mean by diverse is not sort of just surface level diversity in terms of skin color or gender, but I also, I mean sort of inexperience, right? So even in the group that may be all male or all female, you know, the lived experiences, you may have somebody that's married, somebody that's divorced, somebody that's single, you may have somebody who has a kid, nobody, right? All of those diversities matter because those life experiences, when you're trying to create a classroom environment or trying to create a learning environment, that kind of gentle, those gentle differences become places where you're forced to identify who you are in relationship to somebody else. That, that, that does matter in the training. Second is um, being able to play and fail, without consequence. This is a huge thing, and especially when I do leadership training. Um, I talk about our fear of failure, right? And and uh, there's the old story of WD-40. Like, why do you know, what? why is WD-40 WD-40? Well, because 
the, the previous 39 formulas didn't work. <laughs> and so it was 39 failures. Um, and this is true. You go look it up. The 39 failures, the 40th one worked. What do we call it? WD-40. Um, and so that's the formula. Being able to create safe spaces where people can try out things and fail and then reflect on their failures is a really important place. So whether that is preaching or um, sharing the gospel or relationship building for fundraising purposes, right? Um, You know, getting over those first sort of jitters and creating a space of play, if you will, means I can learn from my mistakes and then I feel a little bit more confident when I'm going in that space. And then lastly, um, real world, real, real world experience so moving from sort of the safe place to actually getting out there and doing something and processing it. As a faculty member um, at my previous institution in Washington, D.C., my classroom uh, was on K Street. We had a classroom space on K Street downtown in Washington, D.C. And, um, you know, not many people outside of D.C. know this, but for a long time uh, and even still the case, K Street by day is known as the lobbying center of D.C. But by night, it is one of the, you know, sex trafficking places in Washington, D.C. And so um, my students, uh, as a part of their assignments on on early on uh, Sunday mornings, there was a church nearby and they were required to volunteer. Uh, One of their options was to volunteer at that church early on Sunday morning. I mean, like 6 a.m. And what they would discover is that that church had a recovery ministry. And they would be volunteering in that space, uh, helping to give food and uh, intervention work and all that kind of. um, And these were kids who were not all from cities. Some of these kids were like rural Iowa or Oklahoma. And so seeing a a sex worker in need with a social social worker and a caseworker and you there with a blanket and a cup of coffee kind of doing wraparound intervention work means whoa, this is not book learning we're just talking about. We're also talking about real lives being impacted and then coming back in the classroom and reflecting on that. Those are important parts of the kind of shaping for future leaders that um, that seminaries haven't done historically, but absolutely this world needs leaders to be able to do. Yeah. Um, a little bit of a shift. You have a somewhat famous uh, graduate of the seminary, uh, Fred Rogers, <laughs> Mr. Rogers, for those listening. Maybe, maybe people know them, right? Yep. <laughs> yes. And he certainly didn't invent the, the word neighbor, uh, but he did make it pretty popular in our culture. And obviously, Jesus talked a lot about loving your neighbor. I, I'll just leave this really open-ended and, and certainly share any lessons that you learned from Fred. But uh, what, what do you think about the theology of neighbor and how should we think about that in loving our neighbor? Yeah, so you know we've been on this journey uh, here at the seminary to kind of enact in a in a pedagogical and a methodological way uh, some of the some of the lessons that Mr. Rogers taught all of us. Um, uh, he's a 1961 graduate of the seminary, and uh, a, lot, a lot of people know that Fred is a was a um, uh, a minister. They knew that he may have been an ordained minister, but they didn't know he actually went to seminary. Um, and in talking to people in his world uh, who worked with Fred, they say his seminary education really refined and honed his idea of the show. Wow. And so um, you, some, of, some of the takeaways for us is, you know, 
Fred, Fred was teaching gospel lessons without ever using gospel or Jesus, right? Um, he embodied and was the real deal of what it means to be um, a community uh, and what does it mean to be in a, in a community and, and be a part of a neighborhood. And so um, the important part of being a neighbor and a theology of neighbor is to recognize that, we, that, that all of us live in some kind of neighborhood, Pittsburgh is a city of neighborhoods, but also um, we're in global neighborhoods. We are in national conversation with each other. And that neighborhoods have sort of general requirements of each other, right? Uh, whether that is the golden rule in a, in a religious sense or it's uh, in a secular sense, just simply, hey, can you keep an eye out for the package on my doorstep, right? Or, hey, what happens to my house can happen to your house. So we got to keep a lookout for each other. Those things matter. Um, and being able to recognize that um, the, the, the demands on being a neighbor are not religious. <laughs> they are communal. They are shared. And um, God creates and sustains us in and through our communities. And therefore, we're all kind of in the possibility of neighbor being neighbors one to another. And so as a seminary, we're working through how can we be a neighbor, a place that reforms, forms, and sustains this idea of neighbor, um, both in a religious context, but more specifically in a communal context, one with another. And being a good neighbor as an institution has a whole other uh, kind of dynamic to them. Wow. Uh a little bit more about leadership. Uh, part of your job is fundraising. I've been in fundraising for 13 years. Fun, fun. Uh, best fundraising tips. What have you learned about it? Uh, be relational. Uh, be yourself. Be relational. Um, the, the ask is not as important as the relationship. Um, th that, that last one kind of feels counterintuitive. But a good relationship means you'll get to the ask. Um, but, but if you don't, you know, if you don't have a relationship with someone, you'll never get the ask. Um, uh, additionally, uh, being able to tell your story to multiple audiences is always, um, an important part of, of, of fundraising. And that is, it's, it's never, you're never just talking to the person who's sitting in front of you. You're talking to all the various audiences they represent as well. Um, because if you, because if you have a good relationship with someone, you also have the potential for them to be their best relational person to someone else and to introduce you to the next person that they can, they can, they can breed, breed that. So I value relationships more than anything else. I have a fundraising person who's dynamic. He's really great. He's always looking for me to tell him what to do. And my response to that is you tell me who to talk to, right? It's not, this is, you know, because the, everybody wants the relationship with the president. If they don't want a relationship with the president, they may want a relationship with the institution. Um, we are fortunate to be a well-endowed institution, uh, which means it has a different problem, which is my job in fundraising means why do you need the money? You've got money. What do you need more money for, right? So, you know, the relational piece is becoming an important part of, you want to be a part of what we're doing here, not just um, giving, but you want to be a part of our experience of being a part of PTS. So those are some of the quick tips that I'd give. Love it. Um, so I read that you have a proven track record for advancing equity, diversity, and inclusion in a seminary setting. Obviously, <clears> this is becoming more and more important to leaders everywhere as it should be. Uh, what advice do you have for others when it comes to advancing this as well? So um, I've had 
lots of great experiences doing diversity equity work. One of my best experiences was working with the Arlington County Fire Department in Arlington, Virginia, uh, during COVID. Um, I was just a, a citizen of Arlington County, and they got wind of my work at the seminary at the time and in in sort of communities around uh, this issue. And the chief of fire, the chief the fire chief, sought me out. And uh, we were able to to train 300 plus firefighters um, on diversity equity work um, in a non-threatening way. And you don't think, you know, firefighters don't need this kind of stuff. They they depend on each other. But actually they did. And some of the most diverse experiences I've ever had um, happened with those firefighters. Um, But for me, we miss something when we do this diversity work without bringing in the theological uh, Mm. aspect. And so my approach is often to say the diversity work that we say we're called to is not just because of legal requirements or because it's the thing of the day uh, or it's something we ought to do. Um, This is about human dignity, right? This is about um, being created in the image of God and therefore all of us have a little bit of God's light in us. Uh, and so what that means is respecting each other and seeing each other, not as monolithic, but as a diversity that God is represented in all of these different people. Right. Um, and so then how do we build um, diversity as a, dig- a question of human dignity and appreciating the experiences of each other, what those what those things are? You can't get that from a legal perspective. You can't get that from a sort of a philosophical ideology, but you've got to get that as a part of, you've got to live with these people in your community or on your job or in these places. And so being able to understand what makes them tick makes you a better person and vice versa, and it makes the organization function better. And so those are the kinds of uh, things, and it was most acute with these firefighters, when you ask them uh, in, uh, non-threatening questions, and we only asked them three questions, you know, uh, tell us something about uh, your upbringing, where'd you come from? Um, why are you a firefighter (laughs) and, um, what's your experience of race? Only one of those three questions was a experience of race question. Right. Um, but the kinds of stories that were being talked about were personal stories Hmm. about who they are. And you got to choose how you answer that question. But in answering that question, your fellow firefighters understood what made you tick. And then so doing points of conversation, points of disagreement were illuminated in ways that help people to understand who they, who they are. So those are the kinds of things that uh, I did in the classroom, kind of things I did in the seminary environment. It's kind of things we're doing here at Pittsburgh Seminary. Uh, and I just think um, a lot of those legal trainings that we have to go through or the you know, diversity trainings that we experience loses sight of those kinds of nuances and sim- simplistic engagement around simply being human with each, with each other. Yeah, no, I love that. I, I think I heard Fred Rogers say, I, I quote this all the time, I heard when I mess it up, it's like, there's a person you couldn't learn to love if you just heard their story. And mm-hmm. I, just, I just love that those three questions, I mean, that's basically all it is, it's just people sharing stories. And I, yeah, I, that's beautiful. I haven't heard those three questions. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, with the, mm-hmm. the few minutes we have left, I want to dive into the lightning round, a bunch of fun questions I ask in every interview. And the first one is, what is the best advice you've ever received and who gave it to you? Again, I, I think I said it earlier, a uh, great bit of advice uh, from a, he was the board chair of my seminary at the time. Now he's a bishop in Florida, uh, was 
be careful who you choose to be on your team because the most important thing you do as a leader is choose who's on your team. Come on. If you could put a quote on a billboard for everyone to read, what would it say? Think. <laughs> That's one of the best answers I've heard. Beautiful. Uh, maybe, hey, maybe we can raise a little bit of money and put that up. In Just think. Um, what's a book that you've read either in the last year or all time that's uh, significantly impacted you that you recommend most often? Uh, Brene Brown's Dare to Lead was a really great text. Um, uh, came out a couple years ago. I read it as a part of a class I was teaching on courageous leadership and really thoughtful set of values plus strategies plus stories that kind of welded together sort of my core commitment of being what a leader is. Uh, outside of your growing Lego collection, what's something that people may not know about your journey that uh, they should know? I was a gigging musician. I was, okay. a mus I was a piano player. Thursday nights, I was a piano bar. Friday was a uh, nightclub. Saturday was bar mitzvahs and Sunday was church. So I was, Come on. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was the real deal. Do you have a favorite failure that led to a success or a valuable lesson? Uh, I remember uh, uh, seeking this job at a community college to be a faculty member there. I was like, if I make it here, I am set. I am done. Uh, I was a shoe in for the job. Uh, the the chair of the department, I was their, their favorite candidate. Uh, I was lined up to be the, the person and uh, the provost swooped in and nixed the job and gave it to somebody else. And that failure well, them to choose me was the best thing that could ever happen because that started me, that got me uh, going back to school and finished my doctorate and then got me back into the seminary education and kind of accelerated the next steps. Had I not, had I been hired in that job, my life would be very different right now. Wow. It's funny how things work out. Um, you yep. get to spend time with a, a lot of leaders and I'm just curious, you know, when you get to spend time with someone that you look up to and admire, do you have a go-to question uh, that you always ask? Um, my, my usual question is, uh, cause I'm around, I'm around, I'm around faith leaders a lot of times. So my usual question is, what does the gospel of Jesus Christ mean to you? Hmm. Can you answer that for us? Uh, yeah, I, for me, the gospel of Jesus Christ is life. It is, it is liberative and it is the, um, ever imaginative and creative story of how God liberates us from our own limited imagination, not just from sin, but also our own limited ways of thinking about this world. You got that down, man. You were ready. Uh, <laughs> biggest leadership pet peeve. The failure to make decisions. This is, mm. this could be a podcast all of itself. <laughs> uh, you know, everybody that I hire, I say the single most important thing that a leader does, strip it all down. You make decisions. Uh, even a bus driver who's the leader of a bus is going to go left or right or straight <laughs> or back. You've got to make decisions and leaders that don't make decisions. I, I have no, I have no space for. I don't know if you have an, an actual bucket list or not, but what's something you've done in your life that you think everyone should do before they die? I think you should see the sunset on the Atlantic ocean. Mm. Love it. Uh, it gives you a different perspective. If you could go back and have coffee with yourself at any age and you would have actually listened, what age would that be? And what would you tell that version of Asa? Uh, I think I'd be, I'd, 
probably be um, a freshman in high school. I thought I think I was most open at that time, and I would say to the say to him, um, think more broadly and 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 uh, try out more things. Uh, much of my much of my life was sort of I made my mind up I'm going to do this one thing, and looking back, if I had a more scenario more options of forum, if I'd taken more options, uh, I may have chosen something different or or not. But the that's one thing that I think about often. Uh, and on the other end of your life, looking back at the end, what do you want to be remembered for, and what do you want your legacy to be? Um, I, more than anything else, I'd love to be uh, someone that was remembered to have integrity in the decisions that they made, found that left the place better than how they found it, and that was able to uh, provide for his family in a way that was uh, long-term sustainability for them. Any, anything else you want to leave leaders with today, or anything else you want to talk about? No, this is great. Thanks for having me, Doug. Yeah, Asa, this has been great. Thanks again. And uh, thanks for moving to Pittsburgh. We are blessed to have you here. Our city is better because of you. And uh, it's been an honor to get to know you a little bit, even though I guess I'll never actually get to be one of your friends because you don't need any. <laughs> 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 uh, I'm just joking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for your time today. I'm looking forward to doing it again sometime. Thanks, Doug. Yeah. Well, Leader, thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Dr. Asa Lee. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. You can find ways to connect with him and links to everything that we discussed in the show notes at l3leadership.org forward slash 396. And as always, Leader, I want to challenge you that if you want to 10x your growth this next year, then you need to either launch or join an L3 Leadership Mastermind Group. Mastermind groups are simply groups of 6 to 12 leaders that meet together on a consistent basis for at least one year in order to help each other grow, hold each other accountable, and to do life together. For me personally, mastermind groups have been the greatest source of growth in my life over the last eight years, which is why I believe everyone should be in one. And if you're interested in learning more about launching or joining a group, go to l3leadership.org forward slash masterminds or email me at dougsmith at l3leadership.org. And as always, I like to end every episode with a quote, and I will quote Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And he said this, he said, success isn't always about greatness. It's about consistency. And I love that. Well, Leader, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Know that my wife, Laura, and I love you. We believe in you, and I say it every episode, but don't quit. Keep leading. The world desperately needs your leadership. We'll talk to you next episode.